That last song highlights well a lot of what we'll be thinking about as we work our way through the book of Acts. And as we consider what our purpose is, what our mission is. There's a lot of talk about purpose and mission. And much of that comes to us in the business world, right? That to run a good organization, you got to have a clear mission. Or to be a good uh, worker, a good individual, a good leader, you've got to have this individual sense of purpose. And I wouldn't say that I necessarily disagree with that or not, but I would say the book of Acts will help us find what our God-given purpose is. And that it's that God-given purpose, that God-given sense of mission that really is the key to living this life. In fact, as we consider the book of Acts, we're going to see that we all have a very similar purpose. There's, there's a reason you are living and breathing. There's a reason you're here today. There's a reason for the things that are going on in your life, for the relationships you have, for the job you have, for uh, the family you have, for the church family you have. There's a reason for all those things, and it's all connected to your purpose. Now, a lot of times in life, we experience times of difficulty, dissatisfaction, We feel like we're spinning our wheels and getting nowhere. We feel like the gears are grinding, so to speak, and we're not making any progress. And sometimes we think that it has a problem to do with the way we're going about things, our tactics, right? And so we begin to change our efforts and so forth. But I think a lot of it has to do with being off mission. We've lost the sense of our purpose. And many times the struggles in life are so difficult simply because we've begun heading toward the wrong goal. And the gears grinding in our lives have to do with the fact that we've forgotten what our purpose is. What God is seeking to do in and through us in our lives. This is kind of what the apostles experience as Jesus ascends to heaven, which is what's going to happen. There's a big giveaway in today's passage in Acts chapter 1. As Jesus ascends to heaven, in some regards, it's like the gears grind to a halt. I mean, he has been teaching them. And then at the end of the Gospels, there's this just massive victory, right? Jesus is alive. And if you remember, Jesus has been revealing himself as the Messiah, which to the Jewish mind, to his disciples' minds, meant that he is the king. And if he's alive from the dead, he's accomplished the saving part of his mission, so let's do the kingdom. And then Jesus leaves, and he tells them that it's not yet. (laughs) Kind of scratching their heads a little bit, like, wait a second, you know, this is all heading one direction, and now we've got this big right turn here, in their minds, and a little difficult to understand. But what Jesus gives them to help them with that, what seems like a change of plans to them, what Jesus gives them is mission. He gives them purpose. He reminds them that He's called them specifically to a task, and He sends them on that task. This is what's going to happen, and you're going to need to do this and work hard because I'm coming again. I'm going to return, and the kingdom will come, and this is what I want you to do until that day arrives. 
So the book of Acts, and especially this opening passage, is very much about our purpose, not only for the disciples, but for you and I today. So if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and open to that first chapter of Acts if you're not already there. As we think together about what our purpose is. Now, let me give you a little bit of background as we dig into a new book. Okay, We've been in the Gospel of John and then in the Psalms this past summer. And now we head into the book of Acts. And in one sense, Acts is a great follow-up to the Gospel of John because timeline-wise, it takes, it, it, it's Luke telling us about the stuff that happens right after Jesus' resurrection. And so, in that sense, this is a great next step. It might have been slightly better if we had studied the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, before heading into Acts, because they share the same author. Luke, big surprise, wrote the Gospel of Luke, and Luke also wrote the Gospel of Acts. We know that because of the way both books begin. They're both written to a man named Theophilus. You see that there in verse 1 of the book of Acts. And if you're curious, go ahead and turn over to the beginning of Luke, where in the first verses we have a very similar introduction. He's writing down the things that have been seen about the Lord Jesus Christ, the things he did. And he says, for you, most excellent, or to write to you in orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, there in verse 3 of Luke chapter 1. And the introduction to the book of Acts is very similar. The former account I made, O Theophilus, I think refers to the gospel of Luke. And so now he's writing some more information down for Theophilus. Well, who is this Theophilus guy? We really don't know anything about him except that he's called Excellent Theophilus, so he must have some kind of position or rank or money, likely some kind of patron funding Luke's research and writing to give account of all that happened with Jesus Christ. It also means that Theophilus is probably either a Christian or at least a very curious individual to commission this kind of thing, this task of gathering this information and writing it down. And so Luke uh, seems to be our author. Well, it's certainly clear that the same person authored both accounts, and it seems that Luke is most definitely the author. Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. In fact, in the second half of the book of Acts, you'll begin to see the word we is used, signifying that the author was with the Apostle Paul on those journeys. Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, uh, makes clear that Luke was indeed with Paul in Colossae. And he mentions him there. He mentions some of the circumcision, referring to Jews, and he lists a few people there. And then separately, he mentions Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas, two others that are not listed with those of the circumcision. So Luke was probably a Gentile who came to Christ, maybe through Paul's ministry, and then began traveling with Paul, and previous to that had been a physician, been a doctor. Kind of interesting. His Greek is excellent in both Luke and Acts, and so that's another thing that says that's, that's probably true of his background and educated uh, a Gentile individual who came to Christ and began traveling with Paul, gave himself to the same mission that had been given to the apostles. So, kind of interesting things as we begin our background. Now, a little bit more about the book of Acts. Its genre is historical narrative, very similar to a book like John or Luke. We're hearing accounts of things that actually happened, things that took place. 
And Acts, maybe more than any book in the New Testament, is full of adventure. Oh my goodness, there's a lot that happens in the book of Acts. If you like adventure stories, then you're going to enjoy the book of Acts. Because within this book, we have the ascension of Christ to heaven. We have murder. We have prison breaks. We have shipwrecks. We have snake bites. We have healings. And best of all, we have conversions to faith in Christ. All through the book of Acts, as the church grows and increases. As we go through it, we'll, take, we'll try to take these stories sort of scene by scene. That's how we'll divide sections. Acts is not meant to be a proof textbook. It's not meant to be a book that we go to and say, aha, see, this proves it. No, it's accounts of what happened. And so we'll study it that way. We'll study it scene by scene as we work our way through the book of Acts. It is a book. It's not a gospel Uh, So I'll probably say the Gospel of Acts just because of how much time we spent in the Gospel of John. But it is not specifically about the life of Christ. It's about what happened following the life of Christ. Therefore, it's the book of Acts. However, did you notice that in verse 1, Luke says the account of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So that's referring back to the Gospel of Luke And the word began implies that there's more to come. That within the book of Acts, there are works of the Lord Jesus Christ, things that he did and taught. And certainly we have that in 1 through 11. And you'll see Christ at work through his spirit all through the book of Acts. And the Lord Jesus Christ makes an appearance uh, later in the book of Acts as well. And so, indeed, it is what the Lord Jesus continued to do and teach through his apostles, through the Holy Spirit. It was likely written around 60 to 62 AD, which is actually later than some of the epistles. So, as we get to the latter half of the book of Acts and we come to those passages that it's likely, you know, Paul's in prison here and it's likely he wrote this book and this book right here when he was in prison at this part of the book of Acts. We'll try to point those things out so you can kind of see how the New Testament comes together. That should be interesting. Now let's conclude with the themes of the book of Acts. It's called the Acts of the Apostles by tradition. That's kind of the name that came to us. But many commentators suggest better names. Maybe something along these lines. This is suggested by Daryl Bach. He says, The Acts of a Sovereign God through the Lord Messiah Jesus by His Spirit on behalf of the way. Okay, well, that's sort of a long title, so maybe we won't go with that. We'll just call it Acts, but it clearly is the works of God through His people as he builds his church. And it's exciting to see what happens here. There are, Luke has given us anyway, some summary statements through the book. And in this little in-between section, between the resurrection of Christ and his ascension to heaven and his return, we have this look at what's going on on the earth in between those two events. And it's the building of God's church. And these summary statements emphasize that. There's one in Acts 2.47. There's one in Acts 6.7 that reads this way. And the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. There's another summary statement in Acts 9.31 that says this. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. 
There's another summary statement in Acts 12, 24 that says this, but the word of God grew and multiplied. So the book of Acts is about the multiplication of God's people, God's work through his word, the disciples, the followers, the churches. It all multiplies as God is at work through his word, through his spirit, in his people. And the word goes forth and the church grows and God's glory is multiplied as many come to Christ and the church expands. But all of this draws, this, draws us back to our role in all of that. The book of Acts is very much about the fact that God is the one doing the work. So what then is our part? Do we multiply the church? Do we build the church? Do we expand the strength of the gospel among the nations? No, God does these things. What's our role? Well, as Jesus will explain in this passage, our role is, number one, to just have the Spirit. (laughs) Okay? It's not really us doing anything there, is it? And number two, to witness, to share the truth that we've been given. And even there, it's clear that that's part of the Spirit's work in us, to bear witness. And so we kind of just participate in what God is doing, expanding His church. These summaries help us to see that our role is to witness. Because we've been given God's Word and God's Spirit, God uses our witness to multiply the church. And so that's our key word as we work through the book of Acts. Multiply. As we work through Acts, we'll marvel at the way God multiplies His glory, His followers, and His church. And we learn to witness to the world that Jesus is the Savior. This is our role. This is our purpose, to witness to the world that Jesus is our Savior. It may be that you have gotten off track in your sense of mission, your sense of purpose. And as we work through this text, I think God's desire for us to learn from Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 11, along with the disciples, that in the, the strange U-turns and shifts and changing patterns of life, even when we feel like Jesus has abandoned us, we come back to what our purpose is, our mission, to tell the world that Jesus is the Savior that God sent that His kingdom is coming, and that in order to deal with our sins and be righteous, earn our citizenship in heaven, we do not do a thing. We simply believe in the Savior King who came and died for us and rose again. So we witness to the world that Jesus is the Savior. Notice why this is so crucial for us as we continue through these, these verses. First of all, it's crucial This is crucial for us because He gave us His Spirit. As we continue through verses 1 through 5, this really becomes the focus of Jesus' instruction to them. Pick it back up with me in verses 2 and 3. So Luke is kind of giving us some background. Until the day which He was taken up, that's His ascension, which we're about to hear about in just a second, that He, through the Holy Spirit, had given them commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
It's interesting, Luke points out that even those commandments from Jesus were given through the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder to us that Jesus functioned in his ministry on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. The words that he spoke were Spirit-filled words from the Father to the Son through the Spirit. And the commands that he left them were the work of the Spirit. These commands will come up in the following verses. We'll find one in verse 4, to remain in Jerusalem till the Spirit comes. And the other one's in verse 8, to be witnesses. Right? These are the two commands that he left them with. As we go on in verse 3, "...to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God." So these commands were given to his followers, probably referring to the eleven, those who had spent time with him, those whom he had chosen, and that had seen him alive. And it mentions that phrase, many infallible proofs, or, or things that could not be mistaken. And so they're referring to the fact that the disciples saw the Lord Jesus, they heard him speak, he ate with them, they even touched him. They knew, they saw, it was unmistakable that he was alive from the dead. They were witnesses of what Jesus Christ had done. That indeed, he was the Messiah, the King, now risen from the dead. This happened during what Luke describes as 40 days when Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God. After his resurrection, we learn that Jesus spent about 40 days with his disciples, teaching them more about the kingdom of God. This is what all of it is leading toward. The king came, became the savior king, so that sinners could be given God's righteousness and entrance into God's kingdom. And that kingdom is still coming. And this is why Jesus came, so that now salvation could be proclaimed that sinners could be saved and submit to this king and join his kingdom. And so as Jesus explains these things, or excuse me, as Luke explains that Jesus explained these things, during these 40 days after his resurrection, we get a sense of what's coming here in the next few verses. In verse 4, Luke zooms in on one of these specific gatherings. When Jesus is with his disciples teaching him, and now we actually are listening in to this conversation in verse 4. He commands them not to depart from Jerusalem in verse 4, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. So this promise is coming, and we can think back to the Gospel of John. That promise is mentioned in the Gospel of John, that when Jesus departed, what would happen? The Spirit would come. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. The Father would send the Spirit when Jesus ascended. Verse 5, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, just to look ahead in the book of Acts a little bit, in chapter 2, we come to the Feast of Pentecost, the celebration in Jerusalem, and it's at that festival that indeed the disciples are gathered and the Spirit descends upon them. Now that's at Pentecost, and so we know that Pentecost and Passover, if you remember, Passover is when Jesus' death happened. There are 50 days between those two events, and Jesus was teaching them for 40 days. 
And so here then we have his ascension. And so that means there are about 10 more days until the Spirit came and rested upon them. A little bit of an interesting timeline there. And so as Jesus says, not many days from now, indeed, about 10 days, and the Spirit will uh, be upon them, them being baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this is the promise. His Spirit is coming. And indeed, we'll see in the next chapter of Acts that the Spirit does come. This Spirit baptism is referenced as similar to the baptism of John. And you can remember back to the Gospel of John. John the Baptist, not the author of John, gave this baptism of repentance. And people would be dunked under the water and come back up again in order to signify they were identifying with the coming Messiah. Remember John's message? Prepare the way. The King is coming. And then finally, when he saw the Lord Jesus, he pointed and said, Ah, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John was preparing people for Jesus' coming. It was a baptism of repentance saying, I'm not going to live for myself any longer. I'm ready to follow the Messiah when he comes. Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, you'll also be baptized with the Spirit. John the Baptist told us that Jesus would be the one inaugurating that baptism, doing that baptism. And so the picture reminds us, just like they would have been immersed in the water in that baptism of repentance by John the Baptist, so too now they'll be immersed with God's Spirit in order to be equipped to do what God has called them to do. The Holy Spirit dwelling in them. We could turn back just a couple of pages to remember this is exactly what Jesus had told them would happen in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. There Jesus says, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So at that spirit baptism, when God the Father sends the Spirit, that Spirit would dwell in them and be crucial in completing their ministry. In fact, Jesus commanded them to stay in Jerusalem until that happened, which means they weren't ready to be witnesses until they had the Spirit. This is the key to this first section. Jesus commands them to wait for the coming of the Spirit Father, Son, and Spirit are the key to their mission, and they aren't to get started until they've received the Spirit who will help them remember and understand Jesus' teaching about the kingdom and be able to witness that indeed Jesus is the Savior. And so the first reason it's crucial that we participate in this mission to witness to the world that Jesus is the Savior is because He has given us his spirit. I remember the first time I traveled in a foreign country. I was a senior in high school, went to the country of Brazil. And uh, so in preparation for that trip, I had to get a passport. I never had one before. And uh, so, you know, you get your passport photo taken somewhere and you fill out the application and you wait a number of weeks and finally the passport comes and 
while you're doing all of that, you don't really understand the importance of the passport. You're just kind of like, whatever, they want me to have a passport, so fine, I'll have a passport, I'll go through this process, I'll wait for it to come, they say I have to have one to travel, so great. And you get it, and it's kind of cool looking, you know, it's made of thick leather usually, and it's like, oh wow, okay, so this is kind of a sturdy thing, it's kind of cool, but I still don't really understand the importance of this. And then, You get to the foreign country, and it begins to sink in that, oh, wait a second, I'm not a citizen here. I don't have rights and privileges in this country. And I really only have one way of proving where I am a citizen, and that's my passport. I remember the missionary that we were visiting explaining some of those details to us, and so he kind of said, well, just keep your passport with you. Don't lose it. Keep it on you. I probably won't need it, but... Keep it close, keep it safe, don't lose it. It's your ticket back to the United States, and if anything goes wrong here, you want to have it with you so you can prove your citizenship. Oh, and it began to make sense. And so then I pendulum swung way over here, and so then it was like, guard the passport, right? And so you buy one of those, you know, necklace things that you can hide it under your shirt, you know, and so I'm walking around, like, with my hand here at all times, like... That guy's a tourist, you know, it's like, <laughs> nobody's getting this thing, you know, I got to prove where my citizenship is so everybody knows that I can get back there if I need to. Well, believe me, they all knew there was more than one way to prove I was a tourist, I was an outsider. But that passport became valuable once I understood it was my ticket back, it was my proof of identity. I was a citizen of the United States and could get back there if I needed to. This is, in in an extremely small sense, sort of the way God has intended His Spirit to work in us. Proof that we are His children. Power to fulfill His mission. It's the presence of God's Spirit in our lives that gives us everything we need to be and to do what He's called us to be and to do. Everything. That's what we need, is His Spirit. And what's great about it is we don't need some fancy necklace thing to to guard it and make sure nobody takes it or anybody steals it because it's the very promise of God that those who've trusted in Christ as Savior, at their salvation, receive the Spirit of God dwelling in them permanently, never, ever to be removed. This is a great truth, a great promise. And because we have God's Spirit, it's crucial that we participate in God's mission. The Spirit identifies us as the people of God, the children of God, members of His body, the church, and fully equipped with His Spirit to witness to the world that Jesus is the Savior. So, with His Spirit and His Word, we study and we speak the words of Christ. We yield to and depend upon His Spirit, and this is how God multiplies His church. The disciples were given the Spirit after Jesus' ascension, but after that transition point, it's something that happens at salvation. When you trust in Christ as Savior, you're given God's Holy Spirit. And so an important question as we think about the presence of God's Spirit in our lives is, have you trusted in Christ as Savior? Have you been given God's Spirit? This is, in fact, what gives entrance to God's kingdom. 
The Lord Jesus spoke this way back in John chapter 3. You remember when he was talking with Nicodemus and explaining what the kingdom is like. And he's talking with him. Notice what he says in verse 5. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this presence of God's Spirit is what gives us entrance into God's kingdom in the future. Praise God for that. Not only that, the Spirit empowers us to witness. So have you trusted in Christ as Savior? As John chapter 3 continues, Jesus lays out the gospel for Nicodemus that it's by faith that a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one God sent to be the Savior of the world, as verse 16 makes clear. And that all those who believe have everlasting life, receive God's Spirit, and can enter into God's perfect kingdom. So this is the question for you today. Are you born again? Do you have God's Spirit in you? If you have been Spirit-baptized at your salvation when you trusted in Christ, then God's Spirit dwells in you permanently, and you have everything you need, just like the Lord Jesus, to do ministry. Jesus did ministry by the power of the Spirit, and so we have the same power, the Spirit of God, in us to continue Jesus' mission. This means we yield to His Spirit. We say yes to God and no to ourselves. Not my will, but your will be done, Father, as we continue to do our ministry and to fulfill His purpose. We walk in His Spirit saying yes to Him and no to our flesh. Ministry is empowered by the Spirit. God doesn't need me and my talents and my hands and my feet and so forth, but He wants to use me. And that happens when I'm willing to, as the Scriptures say, have my flesh crucified and be filled with His Spirit so that I can minister as the Spirit-filled version of myself. Galatians 5, 24 and 25 puts it this way, but those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit so that we can be used of God, fulfilling our purpose and our mission. That brings us to the next section where we see that it's crucial we fulfill our mission because He gave it to us. This is from Christ for us in our lives. And verses 6 through 8 lay this out very clearly. Now, verse 6, they ask a really, really interesting question. Jesus says that the Spirit is coming. And this may not make any sense at first, but I think it will. They ask this question, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Based on the fact that Jesus talked about the Spirit, that's what the word therefore in verse 6 reminds us of, based on the fact that they heard about the Spirit, They ask about the kingdom. Is now the time for the kingdom? And it's clear. They are thinking of a literal, earthly kingdom for Israel. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Like it was in the past where a son of David will be on the throne. The kingdom will be restored. It's a very intuitive question. And especially after 40 days of being with Jesus and he's telling them about the kingdom of God, I think they ask a very astute question here. Some commentators begin to criticize them here for asking this question that they should be imagining a spiritual kingdom. And I don't think that's true. 
I think they should be asking about a literal earthly kingdom for Israel because that's what God had promised to the people. And their question is very intuitive because they hear about the Spirit and they ask about the kingdom because in the Old Testament, God's prophecies about the kingdom involved the Spirit of God. That the Spirit would be poured out on the people and that meant it was time for the kingdom. Listen, for instance, to one example of Ezekiel chapter 11 verses 17 through 20. Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the people. He's talking to Israel here. I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you uh, from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And you will go there, and you will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. And I will give you one heart And put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. These promises have yet to be fulfilled for Israel. They will take place in the millennial kingdom. And so the disciples are actually thinking back to prophecies like this. I will give them a new spirit. And they hear this sense. Wait, wait, wait. The baptism of the spirit? Does this mean it's time for the kingdom? And it's the right question. Jesus corrects them not on their sense of the kingdom. Jesus corrects them on the timing. He says in verse 7, It's not for you to know the times or the season which his father has put in his own authority. It's a gentle way of saying, no, it's not right now, and I'm not going to tell you when it is. In fact, Jesus has already mentioned that the father has not revealed to him when the kingdom will come. He talks about that in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, for instance. And so Jesus says, it's not for me to know the times and the seasons when the kingdom will come. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. So you've got the right idea, but it's not yet. And that's what makes verse 8 so significant. Because even though the kingdom is not starting yet, even though it's not yet time, the Spirit is still going to come. And so he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. But it's not for the start of the kingdom, it's to witness. And so in verse 8, he tells them what their new mission is going to be. It's to witness to the fact that Jesus is the King. That He is the Messiah. That He came and He died to provide salvation. And He rose from the, get, from the dead to be the ever-living King. So that there actually can be an eternal kingdom. This is what they are to bear witness about, and that's their mission in the in-between of Christ's ascension and Christ's return. They bear witness. The kingdom is coming. Get ready for His return. You need to be saved if you want to be in this kingdom. Trust in the Savior King who died for you and rose again. And so He says, you'll bear witness. And they're going to bear this witness in Jerusalem, but notice the expansion. Judea and Samaria and then on to the ends of the earth. And that little structure provides sort of an outline of the book of Acts for us. Chapters 1 through 7 deal with Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 13 deal with Judea and Samaria. And chapter 9, and excuse me, 13 and following deal with the ends of the earth, 
at least at that time period, uh, the gospel gets as far as Rome, which was sort of the hub of the ends of the earth. And then beyond the book of Acts, the gospel continues to spread and is doing so today. Here in Grimes, we're not mentioned in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but we sort of are. The ends of the earth, we're included. Here we are. God still doing what he said he would do through his followers. You still a part of what God is doing through his followers. He has given us his mission. And so we understand that though this was given originally to the disciples, those that saw him, that witnessed him, he handed it off to them to bear witness and to write down the things that they've seen. And they've done that now. And Jesus fully intends, I believe, for us to have the very same mission. In fact, we could go back to his prayer in John chapter 17, where he prays for his disciples who are going to bear witness that Jesus is the Savior that God sent. But then he prays for all who will believe in him. That's you and I. And he prays that we would be one with him and with the Father. How does that happen? By receiving God's Spirit. And why are we made one with him and with the Father? So that the world may know that Jesus is the Savior God sent. That's what he says right there in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 25. So you and I are brought into this mission as well because we have the words of Christ and we have the Spirit of God to bear witness, to do what God has called us to do. This is the reason we have life and breath. This is the reason that after getting saved, God didn't remove us from the earth, but rather left us here so that we could continue to tell sinners in need of a Savior that the Savior King has died for their sins and rose again. They can have their sins washed away and they can be right with God. So, if you've been saved, you have God's Spirit for that reason, to tell the world that Jesus is the Savior God sent and that His kingdom is coming. I wonder how often you think of your mission. Do you remember it when you get out of bed in the morning? I'm awake today and alive so that the world will know that Jesus is the Savior. Is it the reason you go to work? Do you remember that it's the reason you have neighbors? Does your mission guide the way you spend money? Does it dictate the way you disciple your children? Are your goals and aspirations all subordinate to this singular mission? To witness to the world that Jesus is the Savior. Even good things can get us off mission. It's all about this. Now, there's so many ways that God does that through us. Part of it is that He turns us, He transforms us into the image of Christ so that in my life, hopefully, to some degree, people can see what Jesus is like. That when we gather as a church, the body of Christ is gathered and that in this gathering, we both speak and show what God is like. And sing what God is like so the world can have that light and see that Jesus is the Savior that God sent. See, this is our mission. The passage concludes with a promise. Not only has he given us his spirit and his mission, but there's a promise here as well that makes this mission so crucial. 
Jesus explains, or excuse me, Luke explains what happens in verses 9 through 11. Jesus gives them these final words to to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then in verse 9, Luke reminds us that when he had spoken these things while they're watching him, they're still looking at him as those words lingered in the air. And a cloud comes and he begins to rise and ascend on high. And that cloud, finally, he then disappears from their sight as he enters the presence of God in heaven. The ascension is important because Jesus didn't just disappear, but in his flesh, his raised from the dead flesh, he went to heaven where he is still alive with a body, risen from the grave, waiting for the time when he will return and set up his kingdom. And so he ascended on high and you can just imagine verse 10, the scene, right? Luke paints it for us well. While they look steadfastly toward the heaven, and you can just imagine their jaws hanging open, right? <laughs> they don't even notice two men stand by them in white apparel, right? So they're just kind of all gazing up into heaven as their Lord has ascended on high to be exalted at the Father's right hand. And these two men, probably angels, we're actually not told. We don't know for sure who they are and why, but anyway, there's. In the appearance of a men in white clothing, they stand by them, and they're certainly messengers of God, so they certainly could be angels. And they say to these guys in verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? I love that. They're just kind of like, uh, hey, guys, what are you doing? You know, you're just staring up at this guy. Oh, 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 yeah, 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 right. The sense is get to work. He's ascended on high. He's done his job. He just handed you a mission, so get to work. Now, this all takes place on the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem. And so it's time for them to head back into the city where Jesus told them to be for what would end up being about 10 days until the Spirit came. And then they could begin witnessing to the work of Christ. And so the angel reminds him of that. The second question is where the promise is involved. The, these men say to them, This same Jesus, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go up into heaven. And I think that signifies that in the body, in the flesh, the Lord Jesus will come down with clouds to the earth to plant his feet, probably again on the Mount of Olives, and that, or, or uh, yeah, Mount of Olives, and that then would begin the setting up of his kingdom. Same way he left. So he's referring to the second coming when the king arrives on earth and sets up his kingdom. Israel repents and turns to Christ. The church will be present as the bride of Christ reigning with him in that kingdom. And so we look forward to this promise of his return. But the sense of why he gives them this promise here through these men is to remind them that it's coming. To remind them that they need to get to work. They've been given a task. They've been given a mission. He's coming again, so testify. Do what you've been called to do. There's a reason I've left you here. Get to work. I'm coming soon. Maybe you can remember back to a time when you were a child or maybe as a parent you've given this kind of instruction to your children. Right? You leave the house for a little bit. I'll be back around 6 o'clock. Now make sure 
if the dish is done, if the laundry folded, and your room is picked up by the time I get back. Okay, 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 yeah, yeah, we got it. Likely story. (laughs) And so the parents are gone, and I can remember as a child, right, getting involved in something. Maybe not even something bad, right? Maybe I was even doing my homework. Probably not. (laughs) Playing some video game or shooting hoops out in the driveway or... Something along those lines, right? And it's kind of like, yeah, well, I'm just, you know, I got time. I'm going to have a little bit of fun, and then I'll get to it before they get back, right? So then I'm in the basement, maybe playing my video games, and that dreaded noise, the garage door. (laughs) You can tell I've lived this before, can't you? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, What time is it? Oh, it's six o'clock. They're home. You know, race upstairs, throw everything in the closet in my bedroom, you know, try to do a few dishes real quick. There's no hope, right? They walk in the door. It's not done. What have you been doing? Well, I got started. (laughs) I had failed. I had failed. I got distracted. Maybe not even with a bad thing, but probably but I didn't do what they'd asked me to do. So Jesus says, hey, I'm leaving you with a purpose. Here's your mission. You have my spirit. Now go witness to the world that I'm the Savior. I'm the King. And I'm coming again. Get to work. Do your mission. Fulfill your purpose. Tell the people that I'm the Savior, that they can have forgiveness of sins. And so, friends, He is indeed coming again. We're going to think about that in our family service today, about His return. And we'll sing a couple songs that may not be as familiar to you about His return, about His coming again. As we study the rest of Scripture, it's not revealed clearly here, but as we study the rest of Scripture, we know the first thing that's going to happen is the rapture when those who have trusted in Christ are called to the air to meet Him in the clouds. This is not the return He talks about here because at the rapture His feet will not come to the ground. will meet Him in the air and forever be with the Lord. That leads into the tribulation, which Deuteronomy 4.29 and many other Old Testament passages describe the tribulations meant to call the people of Israel to repentance and faith in their Messiah. And they will. And it's when the people repent that Christ returns at the end of the tribulation as king. And those of Israel who've trusted in Christ enter into his kingdom. And we who've trusted in Christ in this age between Pentecost and the rapture are the bride of Christ, present there in that kingdom, entering into the joy of our Lord forevermore. This is what's to come. And that end-time timeline could happen at any moment, even today. So am I on mission? Am I doing the things that Christ has done, or will there be that garage door sound? (gasps) I got to get to it. No, now's the time. He's left us here for a reason to witness to the fact that Jesus is the Savior that God has sent. 
So often we get distracted building our own kingdom, trying to be kings of our own little world, seeking pleasure, seeking to achieve our goals. But life is all about living faithfully for that king, not me. There's already a king and he's coming soon, so am I ready? As we think about this as a church, It becomes crucial that we understand that everything in our lives revolves around this purpose. The trials I have are meant to help me be a better witness to the fact that Jesus is the Savior. God allows all sorts of things in our lives. Maybe even lifelong debilitating disease. Maybe tragedy. Maybe this or that or the other thing. It's all a part of His purpose to use us to be witnesses I may need this weakness in order to testify to Christ so that I don't get in the way as His Spirit works through me. In fact, Paul himself talked about that. The thorn in his flesh so that the Apostle Paul wouldn't get in the way of the Spirit's work of witnessing to the power of Christ. Everything in our lives. And as we are faithful to do our part, God builds His church. That's God's work, not ours. So friends, I encourage you, come back to your purpose. You are here. You have life and you have breath for a reason. It may be that you need to trust in Christ as Savior for the first time, receive forgiveness of sins, to be right with God, to be given His Spirit. And then if you've had those things in your life, participate in His mission for you. Witness to the world that Jesus is the Savior and He's coming again. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this text in Acts. We thank you for our friends, the disciples, as they learn right along with us what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how through his victorious ascension to your right hand, he has been given his position as king, and yet we still await the kingdom. And we thank you for giving us your spirit that we, as the body of Christ, can testify to the world that Jesus is the Savior King. Oh, may we be faithful in this task. May sinners all over the world come to faith in Christ because of our witness. Most of all, Father, help us yield to your spirit that we might get out of the way of the work you're seeking to do in us. May we crucify our passions and desires. May you remain Lord in our lives as we seek to serve you faithfully and witness to gospel truth. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.